Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And RORAG is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Today we have the pleasure of chatting to David Johnston, Principal Scientist at Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit in Armidale, New South Wales. David has a doctorate in philosophy, a master in rural science and a bachelor of rural science. He is currently involved in some very exciting research focused on improving reproductive rates in cattle in the north. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Tom. You're quite an interesting chap for us because our business is uh, in genetics and it's, I've often walked around up there at Armidale and people think they know how breed plan works, but really there's only one or two people that know how it works and I think one of them's you. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became one of um, Australia's leading animal geneticists? Well, I, I grew up on a mixed beef um, farm uh, at Tenderfield in northern New South Wales. Uh, we, were, we bred uh, in the early days dairy cattle and pigs, so I got a very, uh, from, from, my, from my birth I was exposed to animal breeding and I, I generated a great interest in that. Uh, went away to boarding school and came back and went to university and from there got interested in, in research and ended up doing my PhD in the US in animal breeding and genetics and then came back and took up a role at the Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit here at the University of New England. And that's where uh, over the last 28 years I've worked as a research scientist uh, developing, as Tom mentioned, the, the breed plan genetic evaluation system for Australian beef cattle. One of the topics we wanted to talk today about is what is genetic gain. Um, a lot of people have different perceptions about that. Those out there that perhaps don't include so much science in their breeding program just want them to be big and beautiful. Um, what's your interpretation of genetic gain from your experiences and knowledge now? Well, genetic gain is simply the um, the change in the genetic makeup of a population over time. So, what is the in in a herd or a breed or a species? You know, what is the average genetic merit of that population as it goes forward into the next generation and the following generation? So, obviously, that can be random. It might be natural selection, but also mankind can intervene and put direction. To that genetic gain such that we can change our populations in a in a direction that we want them to go uh, through artificial selection. People are very familiar with perhaps natural selection. How is natural selection and artificial selection similar or different? Well it, it's very easy in, in natural selection nature determines who will be the parents of the next generation. Uh, when we intervene in our breeding programs we actually choose, like Tom Gubbins at Tamania Angus, chooses who will be 
the parents of the next generation. So you pick who the sires and who the dams will be of your next generation. And that's where we now have artificial selection that in that selection decision that you make, you now determine the direction that your herd and your breed goes in. I've heard once before in my, earlier in my life that um, you know a farmer can really only improve one trait at a time and that he should just focus on one trait. How, how do you put such a great big group of traits together, you know, like 17 or 20 traits together and make them generally improve in one direction? It just, I know, I know how the index system works, but can you explain a little bit about the economic weightings and how that works? Yeah, well, you're right that if you, if you want to make maximum change in any population, then the fewer traits that you work on, the more progress you'll obviously make but only in that one trait. So yes, if you want to make progress, uh, you want to be selecting on one trait if you want to make maximum. But the trouble with that is, in beef production, there are many, many traits that drive profitability. And simply ignoring those doesn't mean they go away by sticking your head in the sand and saying, we're only going to improve one trait. Those other traits are still driving profitability at the commercial producer. So you have to be pragmatic and say, well, in fact, if they're all affecting profit, we have to consider them all at once. And whilst we might give up gain in one trait, we're making gain in the overall breeding objective, which hopefully is derived for profit. And so what we do is we then weight each of the traits that we want to be improving with their economic value, because some are more economically important than others. Some traits are more easily changed by selection than others. And some traits are expressed later in life. And so therefore, the weighting you put on all those traits differs depending on that economic value. And so that's what we come up with when we derive selection indexes is we actually optimise that selection for the breeding objective, which is profit. And so we don't focus on any one trait. We focus on improving the overall breeding objective such that we simultaneously change all the traits in the direction that improves profit. David, at Tamania, um, uh, we collect a lot of uh, raw data, um, which is uh, phenotypic information, weights and um, measurements and scans and all sorts of things on all sorts of different traits that affect profitability. Um, it, it's, it's very difficult for people without a quantitative genetic background to understand how you tear that data apart and work out which components are genetic and which parts are environment. Um, how, how really do you do it? Because it's um, the, we just, um, it just seems like um, an impossibility. Yeah, well, it, it uses very high-powered statistics. And we're using what's called best linear unbiased prediction. So it's a statistical procedure that allows us to separate in that raw record the genetic component of that trait and the environment. Because most of the traits we work with are a combination of the genes that they've inherited from their parents and the environment that you provide at Tamania. And obviously that environment is not transmitted to the, ge to the next generation. It's only the genes. It's only the DNA that comes from the, the sperm and the egg of the mother and the sire that goes on. So our statistical procedure, we separate the genetics using the pedigree of those animals 
and using knowledge of the management group that those animals are in to be able to separate out the genetics from the environment. And it's a bit like simultaneous equation that you might have learned in mathematics at school. We're using similar type procedures to be able to petition those different components using the pedigree and the record on those animals to then use uh, underlying heritabilities of those traits to separate the genetic component of that record from the environment. And it's and it's not it's not simple. You can't you can't do it with a piece of paper uh, that easily, particularly when you're working with tens of thousands of records and hundreds of thousands of animals in pedigrees. Uh, to be able to do that, it requires very large computers and very sophisticated um, uh, genetic algorithms that underline breed plan that allows that to occur. So, David, um, d- adoption in um of this sort of technology in agriculture is um, frustrating, to say the least. Um, what, and, and people will buy a smartwatch without questioning how it works and walk, walk off and with a smile on their face. Why, why do you think it's so difficult, um, the adoption of this sort of technology in the industry? Yeah, that's, the, that's been a, an age-long issue. You know, some would say that it's, you know, we're working with a more conservative sector. We're not working with, you know, tend to be older members of the population that are working and breeding and therefore getting new technology adopted uh, is, is more difficult. It's also difficult when you have to um, look at a bull. Traditionally, a lot of people would say, I'm a, I'm a very good cattle person. I can look at a bull and see that he's a good bull. And, and when you go to EBVs, you have to be almost able to put the blinkers on and say, well, I'm not really interested how he looks. I want to know what his progeny are going to look like, particularly for the crates that are going to make me money. And so it's a pretty big leap to be able to go from looking at a bull to then picking up a piece of paper and reading it and saying, this particular bull is going to have progeny that are going to be better than average or better than this other bull for marbling, for calving ease, for female fertility, um, for eye muscle area, etc., and so you know, it's it's almost people see that as a leap of faith to be able to go from what your eyes are telling you to what a piece of paper might be telling you, and, and so I think that's where the adoption struggle comes from: is people have to um, to, to blindly believe it, and and I, I liken it to um, at some point a, a pilot uh, has to believe the dials on that on on the on the dash of the plane. And it's, it's okay while it's a fine day and you can see the runway out there, but at some point the fog comes across and you can't see a thing and you've got to land that plane using the dials. Those pilots at some point have to trust that those dials are exactly telling them their altitude, etc. And And I think that's with EBVs. You have to get to a point where you believe that they are telling you what the future progeny of these cattle will be and it's getting that trust that that is, is a big big issue in terms of getting adoption. David, uh, we need some examples of um, how animals perform in different herds that are related to size. And I know in the Northern Repronomics Project, you've seen some amazing situations where animals that are related in different herds in different parts of Northern Australia have done, have constantly produced a calf, whereas their peers haven't. Can you give us some examples of, um, of these things happening? 
the environment can have a big impact uh, on reproduction, for example. If, if it doesn't rain and there's no feed, it's very difficult to get cows and calf. But if you give animals exactly the same environment, we can show that you can have one bull whose daughters all get back in calf and you can have another bull whose none of their daughters get back in calf as first calvers when you treat them alike by giving them the same environment. And, and that's genetic. Once you get to that level where you take out the environment by treating them the same, now you're working much more closely with the genetics and we see that sort of magnitude of difference where we get complete rebreed of some bull's daughters and complete failures of others. Likewise, we see the same for puberty. We, we measure the age of puberty in our, in our Boss Indicus heifers in this project and we see um, more than six months difference in the age at which the heifer first cycles uh, that are differences between the daughters of bulls. So again, big differences once you take out or allow them to be directly compared uh, under the same environment. And, and so what does age of puberty correlate to and what, why would that be important? Um, particularly in the north, um, the age of first calving is important. There are some people that are looking to push the production system such that they can yearling mate. A lot of people first mate to carve as two-year-olds. But there are a lot of people who can't carve as two-year-olds and carve as three-year-olds because those heifers are pubertal. So again, the environment can have a big impact, but underlying it can be the genetics where people are looking to make sure that they get good conception rates from their heifers, either that whether that be at yearling mating or or, or uh, two-year-old mating, um, then you know, we've got to make sure that those heifers are pubertal and we've seen in our boss indicus breeds that there are differences there that will impact your, your conception rates in your heifers. David, what's next? You know, is there any low-hanging fruit, any bits of uh, data that, or research that we can do in this area of quantitative genetics to get even more profit and more performance out of what we're doing? Well, the, the first thing is we've got to do a better job of what we've already got. So even with breed plan, even with what's occurring uh, in each of the breeds, uh, we're still not getting large numbers of seed stock breeders recording the current traits. So I think there's even, that's the lowest hanging fruit is that we've still got an opportunity to do way better with what we've currently got. Then the next step will be to make sure that we're we're covering those traits that are going to drive profitability into the future. So we've got to look forward to what are our markets going to be and what are our production systems going to be. Are we likely to have production systems that are going to have less input or more input? So we're going to see more supplementation, higher stocking rates, lower stocking rates, less uh, intervention using uh, you know, medical you know, in, in terms of diseases. We've got to have a view of that because... Uh, if we're faced with those circumstances, then there will be genetic variation and we will be able to capture it. But it's going to be you know, a bit more difficult when we're working with some of those traits. Um, but also our markets, if, we, if there are emerging markets where they require different attributes of that meat, then again, we'll have to be working on it. So really what's missing is, is uh, you know, we've got to have a vision of where 
the industry will be in 10 years because that's where breeding will help. We obviously can't change something that might impact this next week. But if we're looking forward, then we've got to make sure our breeding programs uh, are matching our animals to the, the future environment and that we're meeting consumer expectations and market expectations with those products. So you touched on a little bit there, a bit about autoimmune response. Are you, as a quantitative geneticist, able to help uh, farmers with their social licence in looking after environment and animal welfare? Uh, Do you think there is some possibilities that uh, quantitative genetics might be able to do something in that area? Yes. uh, Obviously, there are uh, management practices that farmers can can take, but there are also some of these traits have an underlying genetic base. So something like the temperament of the animal, which is an animal welfare issue, we can breed more docile animals so that they are not damaging themselves or their handlers. So again, that's a, a welfare type trait. Uh, in terms of environment, we can look at, look at things like feed efficiency such that we are making animals more efficient that would then have impacts on stocking rates that we can have uh, animals on pasture uh, for less time for the same output or we can actually select for something like reduced methane emissions which again would have an environmental uh, implication and we know that methane production there are genetic differences between animals so again we can we can manipulate the diet uh, we can manipulate production systems to change methane, but we can actually underlo- change the underlying genetics of those animals to reduce methane through selection. Jono, um, the podcast finishes off. We, um, we're getting to the end of our time slot, and um, we've got to uh, put you on the spot a little bit by asking you what are the um, mistakes, masterpieces, and mentors that you've had in your life so far. So... Jono, starting off with mistake, what, what are the mistakes that you've made? Um, I make mistakes all the time. And, in fact, that's, that's how I learn, is to do new science. The challenge is to know when you're wrong, when you've actually made the mistake. Uh, so, yeah, w- mistakes are very important in science. Uh, and, yeah, that, that, I, I have not made one huge single mistake I don't believe but I'm making mistakes all the time and learning from them. And your masterpiece Jono what's your masterpiece? Uh, my genetic masterpiece would be my daughter Sarah, <laughs> um, Sarah but of course I'm only half the contribution to that so I can't, can't really claim all of that. And has I, she got I some EBVs do you think? Um, <laughs> she would have very good ones I suspect. <laughs> The, the, the masterpiece key from, from a professional point of view is breed plan. Um, the breed plan genetic evaluation, um, again, been a big team effort, um, but obviously I've been part of that team for now 28 years. So that to me is the, is the masterpiece of my career, uh, is that software that is used to evaluate millions of animals, not only in Australia, but around the world uh, on a daily basis. And Jono, you've um, been hanging around with some pretty amazing people. I'm busting to know your mentor. Who would that be? Um, or yeah, mentors? Well, I, I have lots of mentors because I listen to everyone. You know, so everyone out there is my mentor. Um, from a scientific point of view, I think Keith Hammond 
would be um, right up there because he was the one when I was a very young 20-year-old, he steered me into research. And so, um, and then he gave me my first job. So I think Keith, Keith is probably the one that's had the biggest influence on my scientific career. Very good. Thanks, Jono. Look, I know that uh, we catch up a little bit, for, well, sometimes, a bit once or twice a year, and um, Jono's a R.M. Williams-wearing geneticist from, you know, with a country background. There's almost, uh, it's quite amazing that he has come from where he has to being what he is. He's so well-suited to his career. It's, it's quite amazing. So thank you very much, Jono. It's been great to talk to you, and uh, we wish you well. Thanks, Tom. You've enjoyed it. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app. 